This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation 8. Revelation 8. In the throne room of heaven, John sees a picture too brilliant for words. It's a vision of unapproachable glory that God has. He's described, God is described using only metaphors because what John sees is indescribable. Human language can't capture it. So the best he can do is to say, it's like this. It's like this. This picture is both amazing and problematic. Because in the right hand of him who sits on the throne in unapproachable glory is a scroll containing all God's purposes for judgment and blessing. But no one is found worthy to cross the the vast expanse to take the scroll in hand, break its seals, open it, and enact a document. No one is worthy. And this leads John to weep and weep. It's as if he and all of human history will be stuck in the way things are today. Until he sees... The slain lamb standing, Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy. He seizes the scroll and begins to break the seals, enacting God's purposes for judgment and blessing. And the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse who represent war, civil strife, economic breakdown, and death. Because revelation is prophecy and because biblical prophecy has multiple fulfillment, these four horsemen are riding forth currently, will continue riding forth until the end, and have been riding forth for 2,000 years. In the fifth seal, we're shown a picture of Christian martyrs in the very presence of God, praying, how long, sovereign Lord? holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. They have experienced all the four horsemen have unleashed on the earth and they lost their lives because of their fidelity to God's word and their testimony of Jesus. In the sixth seal, we're given God's response to their prayer. Final judgment. We read the end of chapter 6, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Chapter 6 ends with this haunting question on the great day of the Lamb's wrath who can stand 
Chapter seven interrupts the seals to answer the question. John explains that those who have been sealed by God will escape his wrath that is to come. The 144,000 in verses one to eight are the same as the great multitude of verses nine to 17. It's the people of God in their entirety. They have been sealed by God and will stand. And indeed, in John's vision, he sees that they stood. They stood. And the question that comes barreling off the page at us is, did John see your face in the great multitude? Now in chapter 8, he returns to the opening of the seals, a seventh seal. It may seem unnecessary since the sixth seal led to final judgment and the end of history, but remember, Revelation is more like a work of art than it is a spreadsheet. You need to take in Revelation like a painting, not a database. So let's walk through these five verses we're considering today and see what we can see. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, the scene in heaven right now is described in chapters 4 and 5. We looked at that several weeks ago. God and the Lamb are receiving unceasing worship and honor from the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and the entire angelic host. There's nothing quiet about what's transpiring in the throne room of God because there is something about the worthiness of the lamb that elicits our loudest praise. And then we come to this verse. For a half hour, there was silence. Ten seconds. Is it filled with nothingness? A vacuum in the visions that John is being given? The Old Testament is remarkably rich in a theology of silence, particularly as it relates to judgment. For example, Idolaters who die abide in silence. Psalm 115. Those who persecute God's people are judged by God and they sit in silence. Psalm 31. Babylon and Israel are silent because of God's judgment against them. Isaiah 47, Ezekiel 27, Amos 8, Lamentations 2. This silence isn't emptiness but judgment. There is a hush that falls over all humanity, prompted by the realization of the seriousness of the imminent judgment of God. We see that in Zechariah 2, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Zephaniah 1, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. 
Habakkuk 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You say, well, I thought we already had the final judgment. Now, my take on the seventh seal is that it is a recapitulation of the sixth seal, and it's recapitulated in order to demonstrate the importance of verses three to four on this final judgment. Because what you have in chapter eight, verses one to five, chapter one records the seventh seal. Uh, chapter ver- chapter uh, Verse one records the final seal. Verse five records the final seal. It's a sandwiching technique you see in biblical writing often. It's done in order to demonstrate the importance of what lies in between the bookends. So verse 1 is talking about the seventh seal. Verse 5 is talking about the seventh seal. Everything in between is meant to be seen in light of that. Let's keep looking. Verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, this is an interlocking verse. We're finishing up the seven seals, but the next section that we're going to be looking at actually after uh, the new year, going into Christmas, after the new year, is the seven trumpets. Because you've got these series of seven judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. Chapter 6 all the way through 16. Verse 2 is teeing it up, saying, We're finishing with the seals, but the trumpets are to come. And they are related to what you have already seen. They're related to what you have already understood. This is an interlocking verse. It's foreshadowing something to come while tying together what's to come with what has been. Verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. So the angel brings the prayers of God's people before the Lord. There is a rich Old Testament background to this. We looked at this when we looked at the atonement this past summer. On the Day of Atonement, a a censer, a metal container, was brought inside the most holy place, and a coal had been placed on the incense inside the censer to create a cloud of smoke, all so the high priest wouldn't die, to shield himself from the glory of God that resided in the most holy place. This incense was pleasing to God. It averts his wrath. Here, the prayers of all God's people are portrayed as incense pleasing to him. Psalm 141 tells us, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, this isn't the first time in Revelation we've been told the the prayers of God's people are incense to him. We saw that in chapter 5, right? And when he had taken the scroll, Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's us. That's us. I so desire for you to be encouraged by what you're seeing in these words. The fact the prayers of God's people are likened to incense is a very good indicator. Prayer is a pleasing aroma to God. 
Look at what immediately follows this commentary on God's people praying. Verse five, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Verse five is what verse one symbolizes, the judgment of God. This is the seventh seal. This is the end. What's interesting is that you have this kind of language after the seventh of each seal, trumpet, and bowl. After the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, this is what we read. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the end. After the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. The seventh seal is the end. And the seventh seal are the bookends. Verse 1, verse 5, and what's in between are the prayers of God's people. What's the point? Let me give you the point. The point is to show us the role of prayer in bringing about the coming of Christ in God's judgment. In other words, what we have in this text is an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as, as God's people have cried out again and again and again, let your kingdom come. Not one of these prayers, prayed in faith, has been ignored. Not one. Not one has been lost. Not one has been forgotten. Not one has been ineffectual or pointless. They have all been gathering on the altar before the throne of God. And the flame has been growing brighter and brighter and more and more pleasing in the presence of God. And the time will come. When God will command his holy angel to take his mighty censer and fill it with fire from the altar where the prayers burn before the Lord and pour it out on the world to bring about all God's great and holy purposes and to bring them all to completion. Which means that the consummation of history will be owing to the prayers of us. Believers who cry out day and night Let your kingdom come. Not one God-exalting prayer has ever been prayed in vain. Not one. This is an astonishing tribute to the enormous historical importance of prayer. The emphasis on prayer makes a number of important points. I'm going to draw your attention to three. First, God hears prayer. He hears prayer. In a moment, we're going to spend time in prayer in this room. We're going to spend some extended time in prayer in this room. We're going to live out the text. And when we do, can you remember something? Your prayers are incense that waft into the throne room of God. Your prayers are incense that waft into the throne room of God. 
Have you ever thought of prayer this way? As you're praying, have you ever thought, God, let it waft. Let it waft. All the way. All the way to your throne room. It's incense, folks. It's not skunk. It's incense. God loves the aroma of his people praying for his kingdom to come. He loves it. Oh, he loves it. Second, God invites us to pray his kingdom come. He invites us to pray for his kingdom to come. The prayers of God's people in Revelation 8 are specifically for what? Judgment. Do you see it? Judgment. It's a continuation of the prayer of the martyrs in chapter 6. How long, sovereign and Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's a prayer for judgment. Interesting, huh? It's a prayer for God to judge the wicked. But there's something to notice here. These sanctified martyrs in the presence of God are praying exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray that your name, your very being, would be revered and prized above all things. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your kingdom of love and holiness be established, evil vanquished, the wicked judged. You might say, well, I, I don't really pray for the end of the world. I don't pray that God would come and judge the wicked. And maybe you feel pretty good about that, that you don't pray for those things. But you might pray a little differently if you were persecuted for being a Christian. What if people took your family and raped the girls and the women, burned the house? You might have a little different sense that says, I want a God of justice. Several years ago, a video was posted online of two pastors in northern India being beaten to death because they were preaching the gospel. I don't ordinarily look for this sort of thing, but a blogger whom I respect had written an attending reflection on it, so I decided to watch. It was gruesome. It was barbaric. It was animalistic, stomach-churning to watch the way in which these two pastors were slowly tortured until they were dead. Their bodies were left in the dirt road. If you experience enough of that, I can imagine why someone would pray, how long, sovereign Lord? Holy and true, 
until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And one important biblical truth we need to realize in all of this is that salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. The one hand, salvation shows God to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger and steadfast love. On the other side of the coin, judgment shows that God is going to be the one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of the sons, on the third and the fourth generation. So the reality of judgment should keep us from thinking that God is purely a sentimental God as though he's a grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go. On the other hand, the reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. So these people are praying for God's kingdom to come and judgment is the way it comes. Don't you pray for evil to be vanquished? Conservative estimates say that during our worship service today, three Christians will be murdered because of their faith in Christ. Around the world, there are three Christian martyrs every hour. Conservative estimates. Don't you pray that God would bring that to an end? And avenge their blood? Don't you pray that there would be no more cancer? That there would be no more vehicular homicide due to intoxication? No more leukemia? No more death? Don't you pray? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So when Jesus comes, what do you think he's going to do? Just hug everybody? He will come to judge the living and the dead. It will be a great day of triumph and celebration for his people, and it will be a great day of mourning for all those who pierced him. Third, God has arranged things so that prayer makes a difference. God has arranged things so that prayer makes a difference. It really does. Now, it's not as though when we're praying, God hears our prayer and says, whoops, I never thought of that. Thank you for your insight. But God has sovereignly ordered the world so that he responds to prayer. He has sovereignly ordered the world, so he responds to prayer. And his sovereign purposes are accomplished through his people praying. So that the hands that fold in prayer move the hands of him who moves the world. Do you want to have influence? Pray. You want to have influence? Pray. 
I heard a story about a seasoned pastor reflecting on ministry. And he said, well, I'm the preaching pastor, and so I'll admit it, I probably have more influence on the church than anyone else because I preach and I cast vision. And then he caught himself. He stopped. <laughs> and he said, except I bet there are a few folks in this church who are prayer warriors. And if that's the case, then they have more influence than I do. Because they're on their knees moving the hand of the one who moves the whole church. And that's true. So my question to you is, will you pray? Not, do you pray? I have no interest in making you feel bad if you haven't been. But will you pray? Will you pray? In the next several minutes, I'm not going to give you the option not to. (laughs) We've got a text in front of us that creates immediate application opportunity, so we're going to do that, okay? Because we need to. We need to. We need to fill the throne room with incense. We need to fill the throne room with incense. So I want to guide us through a time of prayer. Let's all bow our heads. Let's posture ourselves before the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll find your mind wanders, so I'm not going to just say pray for anything you want. (laughs) The best antidote to avoiding that is, is to get something specific in front of you. Oftentimes, it's the best way to do this is to pray with your Bible open. Pray through the verses. We're going to stay in this text. I hope... You're homesick for heaven. I hope you are. It's way, 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 way better than this world. (laughs) Let's begin by praying Jesus would come again. That he would, through judgment and salvation, bring an end to evil, sickness, corruption, and death. Let's pray. Let's let our incense rise And pray, Jesus, please come back.
Jesus, we pray you would come. And you'd bring an end to evil and sickness, corruption and death. Come, Lord Jesus. Until that day, let's pray that God would establish his kingdom on earth. Let's pray that he would be revered where he is not currently. Let's pray that Jesus would become the obsession of those who think of him indifferently. Let's pray that hearts would be electrified to know and love Christ. And because of all this, we would see a transformation of our society, our culture, and our world. Let's let our incense rise and pray. Oh, Lord, our world is in need of radical transformation. It's in need of radical transformation. Lord, I pray you would, through the advancement of the gospel, do that work. Finally, let's pray for the purity and the perseverance of God's people scattered about the world, that we would be faithful to Christ even to the point of death, that we would not prostitute ourselves after money and earthly power, the approval of the world, but supremely and desire and worship Christ. Let's pray that our, the church would truly be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth, an outpost of the coming kingdom, an embassy that anticipates the eternal age. Let's let our incense rise and pray.
risen and exalted Christ, the day of your return is one we expectantly long for because your death has redeemed us. Your spirit fills us, your love animates us, and your word governs us. By a wonderful work of infinite power and love, you will come again to raise to life all those who are united to you in faith. Jesus, keep our hopes tethered to you. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep our hearts longing for your return. And while we wait, Jesus, I pray that your church would truly be your body. That we would manifest your presence to the world. That we would be a countercultural society who glories in just one thing. You. We worship you now for your glory alone. Amen.